He said before, so I now say again, if anyone preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. Now, the word accursed there, anathema, in New Testament Greek is the strongest word that could possibly have been used. The Apostle Paul was so adamant on this subject that he said, if we come back to you in Galatia ourselves and we give you a different gospel than the one that we gave you when we came the first time, count us cursed by God. Even if an angel materializes out of heaven and preaches to you a different gospel than the one that we have given you, count the angel under the divine curse. That's about as strong as you could get on the subject. Now, Mormonism is the only cult that began by angelic revelation. The angel Moroni allegedly appeared to Joseph Smith, Jr. in Upper New York State in 1823 and told Joseph that he was to be the prophet of the restoration, that Christianity had perished from the earth, in effect, and that Joseph was going to restore it. He told Joseph to go and dig in the hill Cumorah, and Joseph allegedly did, and there he found miraculous plates like gold. And written on the plates in reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics was what is today known as the Book of Mormon. Now, unfortunately for Joseph Smith, who claimed that Mormon was a prophet on the American continent oh, more than a thousand years before Joseph translated the plates, we have uncovered, as you will see on the screen, the actual origin of the word Mormon. And it is from a publication in 1774, which was quite before the publication of the Book of Mormon in 1830. And as you will notice, the Mormon is actually a baboon. And I think that what a lot of people have to recognize is that when you are handed the Book of Mormon, you are being handed the Book of Baboon. <laughs> he wasn't an early Mormon prophet, he was a baboon. And of course, the person that really wrote the Book of Mormon, Solomon Spaulding, from whom Joseph Smith managed to borrow it along with Sidney Rigdon, knew that. He was a scholar. And he put it in there, tongue-in-cheek. What could be funnier to a person who was informed than the fact that a prophet of God allegedly should be called a baboon? And that's exactly what Spaulding intended, I believe. But there's the evidence, and I don't think it can just be lightly dismissed by the Mormon church. Now, Joseph Smith, Jr. claimed that he was the prophet of the Restoration. And the Mormon church has gone on perpetuating the idea of Joseph Smith as prophet and seer and translator, the man who translated the Book of Mormon. Now, how did he do this? Well, he couldn't read Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. So, the obliging angel, Moroni by name, provided him with the Urim and the Thummim from the Old Testament. They were two stones, looking very much and suspiciously like spectacles. And Joseph, when he placed them on his eyes, could look at these miraculous plates and the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics became King James English. That's why you will find throughout the Book of Mormon repeated direct quotations from the King James Bible a thousand years before the King James Bible was translated. Now that really calls for a stretch of revelational imagination. But Joseph had a tremendous imagination. And the angel Moroni gave him this restoration. Well, what we're supposed to do as Christians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
is to put everything to the test and to hold fast to what is good. Obviously, if Mormonism is the true restoration, if Christianity had passed from the earth, then everybody ought to be Mormons. But if Mormonism is a counterfeit, if it's another gospel with another Jesus and another spirit, as Paul warns in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, then we should test it, we should unmask it, and we should present it to the world as an enemy of the Christian gospel, and in fact, as another gospel. Now, people often say to me, well, what right do you have to subject Mormonism to this kind of investigation, or for that matter, any other cultic group? The right of Christianity, the right of a minister of the gospel and a professor of comparative religions, and a right which was given to me not only by the Bible, but also given to us by Mormons themselves. Brigham Young, who succeeded Joseph Smith in the Mormon church, made an interesting observation. He said, quote, Take up the Bible, compare the religion of the Latter-day Saints with it, and see if it will stand the test. Close quote. That's Brigham Young. He tells us, take up the Bible. He's right. We take the Bible, and we compare the original revelation with the allegedly restored revelation. And the oldest revelation judges the younger revelation. If Mormonism, therefore, is not in accord with the Scriptures, then we know immediately that we are dealing with a counterfeit. Now, Brigham Young wasn't the only one that said things like this. There's another quotation which you can see on the screen, which I think will put you in proper perspective. In the very important publication, The Seer, by Orson Pratt, you have this particular statement. Convince us of our errors of doctrine, if we have any, by reason, by logical arguments, or by the word of God. And we will be ever grateful for the information. You will ever have the pleasing reflection that you have been instruments in the hands of God of redeeming your fellow beings from the darkness which you may see enveloping their minds. Come then, let us reason together and try to discover the true light upon all subjects connected with our temporal or eternal happiness. And if we disagree in our judgments, let us impute it to the weakness and imperfections of our fallen natures. And let us pity each other and endeavor with patience and meekness to reclaim from error and save the immortal soul from an endless death. Close quote. The Mormon church has invited us through its apostles and its prophets to take up the Bible, to compare, to see whether or not the revelation is true. So I am not embarking on any career of attacking Mormonism. Rather, on the pursuit of what the gospel and what the Mormons themselves in Brigham Young and Pratt have said we ought to do. I'm going to take Brigham literally. I'm going to take up the Bible, compare the religion of the Latter-day Saints with it, and see if it will stand the test. Now, the Book of Mormon is supposed to be the most correct book, according to the Mormons, that's ever been printed. Yet, a study has been made of the Book of Mormon from its original edition in 1830 till the present day. And the Book of Mormon has more than 3,700 changes from the time of the first edition to the current edition. I'm not just talking about grammar and punctuation. I'm talking about names and places 
and events. And if you go into the Book of Mormon, which we don't have time to go into in great detail, you'll find some fascinating things in there. First of all, the Book of Mormon maintains that there was an argument between two gentlemen, Coriantumr and Shiz. And in this tremendous confrontation, Coriantumr whipped out his sword and cut off Shiz's head. Now Shiz falls to the ground, the story says, as you can see, and his head rolls away from his body. The Book of Mormon then says, Shiz raised himself on his arms, or off the ground on his arms, and breathed his last. <laughs> now, I don't know how it's possible to get your head severed from your body, have it roll away, you drop to the ground, and then with your head a couple of feet away say, I think I better breathe my last. <sighs> I don't know how you're going to manage that. Neither did the person that wrote it, and it was there for that very purpose, just as the name Mormon was there, to show you that this was not to be taken literally as a divine revelation. And again, the Book of Mormon uh, contains things that are a little bit disturbing, uh, such as two gentlemen saying goodbye, and one says, adieu, adieu. That's a French word. A French word in the mouth of a Hebrew a thousand years before the word was known <laughs> or invented. And you know what it means, anyhow. Adieu means I hope I never see you again. <laughs> Goodbye. A French word in a Hebrew context. Utterly ridiculous. And uh, I think if we study many more instances of this, we'd see right away that the Book of Mormon was not the most correct book that was ever printed. Now, the scripture also speaks on the subject of prophets or those who claim that they are prophets. And I'd like you to go back with me for a moment to Moses, to the book of Exodus, chapter 13. Exodus, chapter 13. And here you have a tremendously important statement. Excuse me, Deuteronomy, chapter 13. Deuteronomy, chapter 13, not Exodus 13. And it says, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God tests you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The scripture goes on to point out that that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be executed because he has spoken for the purpose of turning you away from the Lord your God to thrust you, verse 5, away from the Lord thy God. So thou shalt put the evil away from the midst of thee. Now what we're being told here, I think in no uncertain terms, is the fact that false prophets are not to be listened to. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 18 says that if a prophet speaks in the name of God and what he says fails, you shall not respect that prophet anymore. And we've already seen in Deuteronomy, excuse me, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, that God warns Israel against false prophets and false shepherds who will lead them astray. And they say that the Lord hath spoken. And God says, but I have not spoken. So the way to find out if God is speaking is to test the word. Compare it with what God has said on the subject rather than just accept it because somebody comes along and says, this is the truth. Now, in Mormonism, you have four sacred books, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and the Bible. 
insofar as it is correctly translated. What does that phrase mean? The Mormons use it all the time. It means this, that every place that the Bible contradicts Mormon theology, at that place it is not correctly translated. Now there's a quick way to deal with this. When a Mormon missionary says this to you, or a Mormon says this to you, you just smile benevolently and say, Oh, you have extensive knowledge of Greek and Hebrew then. You read the original languages of the Bible. And they say, well, no, actually, I can't read Greek or Hebrew. Oh, well, if you can't read the original language, how do you know it is incorrectly translated? And they'll just look at you. That's all they'll do because there's no answer to it. You can't say something is incorrectly translated if you can't read the language. And since they can't, that ends the dialogue at that point. Now, as you go further into dealing with the Mormons, I think what you have to do is recognize that the Latter-day Saints, as they call themselves, are, by and large, decent, righteous, in the sense of daily living, ethical and moral, in their relationships with other people. They really, seriously believe that they are Christians. And it comes as a terrible shock to them to find out that the Bible does not sustain the Mormon religion. And what you have to do is separate in your mind the Mormon people from the Mormon church. The Mormon church is the organizational structure begun by Joseph Smith and perpetuated through his writings and through those who succeeded him in the church. It is a closed corporation of people who run a multi-billion dollar business. The Mormon people are the victims of that business and of that organization. We are not anti-Mormon. We are anti-Mormon theology and Mormonism when it attacks the foundations of the Christian gospel. To believe that you're a Christian, to be upright and moral and ethical, doesn't save your soul, as we pointed out in our initial lecture. What saves you is a living, vital, personal relationship with the historic Jesus Christ of the Bible. It is a regeneration of the individual. But regeneration and salvation in Mormonism does not come through faith in Jesus Christ alone or by grace. It comes this way, by repentance, baptism, faith, and good works, and obedience, and I'm quoting, to the laws and ordinance of the gospel as taught by the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Which means that we are not talking about a Christian concept of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 says it is by grace we have been saved through faith and that not by ourselves it is the gift of God not by works lest any man should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has already ordained that we should walk in them. So Mormons aren't going to be saved by imitating Christian ethics and morality. Mormons are going to be saved by the recognition that the gospel of Jesus Christ never went any place. It's been here all along. How do we know that? Because in Matthew chapter 16 in your Bibles, Jesus Christ said so. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, if Christianity disappeared from the earth until Joseph Smith restored it, in the 19th century, then the gates of hell most certainly have prevailed against the Christian religion. But the gospel was preached down through the ages. People were regenerated. And the great church fathers 
and the reformers and those who preached the gospel right up to the time that Joseph Smith came on the scene were leading people out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We therefore know that the gospel didn't need to be restored because the gospel never went any place. Now, there are many passages of Scripture which bear this out. We know, for instance, that the Apostle Paul warned the leadership of the Christian church in the book of Acts, chapter 17, that they should by all means put false prophets and false teachers to the test. He said, put them to the test. Find out if they're genuine. Well, you know, you find out that they did that. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, the elders of Ephesus did what Paul said. They tested the false prophets and the false teachers. And God, the Holy Spirit, commends them and specifically says to them, you put to the test those who said they were apostles and you found out that they were liars. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. Apostle Pratt tells us that. Brigham Young tells us that. The Bible has told us that. Test it, test it, test it. We're also told in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, to put the spirits to the test because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We test the spirits to see whether they are from God. As we approach the subject of Mormonism, people often say, well, uh, why do you put such emphasis upon Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the Mormon doctrine of God and Christ? Why? Because if I quote anybody else, Mormons will say, well, that's just their opinion on the subject. But if I quote Joseph Smith or Brigham Young, that's not opinion anymore. We are dealing point blank with historic Mormon theology. That's why you're always safe with Joseph and Brigham, because no Mormon who wants to stay in the church is going to controvert Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. Now, the four standard works of the Mormon church I gave you just a moment ago, but the Mormons are fond of saying those works represent the church. Those are the only ones you can quote authoritatively. That is not the truth. And I will demonstrate that very easily as you can read it for yourself on the screen in the presiding bishop pricks page of the ward teacher's message for June 1945 under the heading Sustaining the General Authorities of the Church. Listen to what the Mormon Church says. Quote, when our leaders speak, the thinking has been done. When they propose a plan, it is God's plan. When they point the way, there is no other which is safe. When they give direction, it should mark the end of controversy. God works in no other way. To think otherwise would, to think otherwise without immediately repent, without immediate repentance may cost one his faith and may destroy his testimony and leave him a stranger to the kingdom of God. Difficulty reading that because of the ancient printing of 1945. But at any rate, there is the documentation where the general authorities of the church are sustained, you see, by Mormonism and sustained by the leadership so that when they speak, the thinking has been done. You are to listen to what they say God works in no other way. I think that's fascinating because it shows us that beyond the standard works of the church, there is the word of the general authorities of the church, and they are the ones that are speaking and giving the divine leadership and direction. Now, there are some very common myths associated with Mormonism. 
One of the myths is that the Christian church attacked Mormonism. That Joseph Smith, who was assassinated in Carthage, Illinois in 1844, was actually a victim, and the Mormons were victims of the Christian church. Now, I want to make it obvious to anybody who can read and think that this is a myth and has no validity whatsoever in history. It is true Joseph was assassinated, but not by Christians. It was true that the Mormons were persecuted and driven out of Illinois and took to the valley of the Great Salt Lake and carved an empire out of the wilderness. That's all true. But they were not persecuted and driven by the Christians. They were driven by people whose daughters had been brought into polygamy by the Mormons and by Joseph Smith's attitudes, even counterfeiting banknotes and circulating them among his people as currency, plus the fact that he called himself General Joseph Smith, and he didn't have an army to be general of. He antagonized the entire community. And after antagonizing the entire community and stealing, in effect, the daughters to be plural wives and bringing them into the ancient and, uh, we would hope, forgotten practice of polygamy, Joseph got everybody angry. So they stormed the jail where he had been taken for protection, and they assassinated him. Now, another important myth is the idea that Joseph Smith is a martyr. You know what a martyr is? The meaning of the word is a witness, somebody who dies gladly for their faith. Joseph did not die gladly. He died with a six-gun in his hand, shooting at the people who were shooting at him. Now, I'm not saying that that was wrong to defend his life, but I am saying that's no martyr. A martyr is somebody who would accept death without ever taking any means of defending himself or herself. That was not the case with Joseph Smith, Jr. Now, if you go on a little bit further, the Mormon church maintains that Christianity is the villain, that Joseph was the victim and the Mormons were the victim. Now, in order for us to deal effectively with that, what we have to do is to quote, actually, what Joseph Smith had to say about the Christian church. This is called his first vision. And you will note, as you look at this on the screen, that Joseph minced absolutely no words. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, when I asked the personage who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right and which I should join. Notice this is Joseph Smith, Jr., in a revelation from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Here's the revelation. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said, All their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt. And then God, in character, speaks in perfect King James English and quotes the New Testament. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Close quote. So God is addicted to King James English. You can see this when he communicates. Notice carefully here. They were all wrong. So all the churches of Christendom were wrong. The creeds are an abomination. And the professors are corrupt. So Joseph attacked the church in the name of God by wiping out all the denominations, wiping out all the creeds as abomination, and then wiping out all of the people as corrupt. So the only church that was left was the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. 
the Mormon church. Incidentally, Mormon missionaries will often say to you, and it's another myth, that theirs is the true church because they're the only church that has the name, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. They're the only ones that have apostles and seventies, and that makes them the true church. Well, anybody could organize a church, claim to be a prophet, appoint seventies, and do everything that Joseph Smith and the Mormons did, and it wouldn't entitle them to be the true church of Jesus Christ. But Mormons want you to believe that the name of the church gives validity to what they're saying. However, a little historical research reveals that the name of the church at first was the Church of Christ. That was God's revelation initially. It should be called the Church of Christ. Later, God changed his mind, as he has a way of doing in Mormon theology, and it was named the Church of the Latter-day Saints. He apparently didn't get it right the second time either, because in 1838 he changed it to the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. So, twice God made the mistake, and then God corrected it finally the third time. Who knows, we may get future changes depending upon the mind of the deity. But the mythology that it's the true church because of the name disappears in the light of history. Also, one of the things we are often told is that you don't really have any authority to question Mormonism. We have the authority of the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. And therefore, where did you get your authority? Ours came from John the Baptist and from Peter, James, and John. The Mormon missionaries will tell you this without a blink. Very important for you at that particular juncture to say to them, well, if that's the case, then I think you're going to have to consider my authority greater than the one you just stated, because mine was given to me personally by Jesus Christ and by direct revelation. The Mormons will say, Jesus Christ gave you your authority? Absolutely. You turn in your Bible to John chapter 1, verse 12. To as many as received him, that's Christ, to them he gave authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You and I are sons of God. Our authority came directly from Jesus Christ, and that supersedes John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John. And therefore, when the Mormons talk about this, you should point out this particular fact immediately so that they will not push what is obviously mythology. Now, there are many, many other passages which could be cited, many other things that could be brought to bear at this particular juncture. But we don't have any quarrel with the Mormon people. They're souls for whom Christ died, and we love Mormons for Christ's sake. But as Christians, the scripture says, cling tight to what's good and hate that which is evil. How are you going to cling tight to what's good without a corresponding abhorrence for what is evil? You can't. So Christians are to hate false doctrines and false teachings. But Christians are to love the people that are misled by these things. Therefore, terribly important for us as believers in Jesus Christ to have concern for the Mormons. Many times Mormons will say, Walter Martin, he is an anti-Mormon writer. No, Walter Martin is a Christian writer defending the Christian faith, as we all must, against the attacks of Mormonism, the person of Jesus Christ and the virgin birth, because these are the keys 
If you're right in every area of theology and you are wrong about the identity of Jesus Christ, you're wrong enough to lose your soul forever. So what we have to do is to sum all of this up and understand what our responsibility as Christians is. Doctrine of God. Well, the Mormon doctrine of God is very clear-cut. We have to listen to them speak, and Joseph Smith, Jr. is the one who does the most effective speaking in this area. So also does Brigham Young. Joseph said, I will preach on the plurality of gods. And then he goes on in his last recorded sermon prior to his assassination, the King Follett Discourse, as it's called, to say that you must all press forward, in effect, to become gods, the same as all the gods have done before you, to go from a smaller degree to a greater degree until you become a god in exaltation. Now, the difference between Mormonism and Christianity is the difference between polytheism and monotheism. The Mormons believe in the existence of many gods. They believe each of these gods, including Jesus Christ, has a body of flesh and bone. The only one exempt is the Holy Spirit, who is a personage of spirit. The Trinity for Mormonism, Joseph Smith said, is three gods. He always preached three gods. He denied the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons. Now, the Bible speaks out against Mormon polytheism very forcefully. Just look at some of these references in Scripture. Isaiah 43:10. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know, that you believe, that you may understand. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. The Mormons aren't going to become gods because God said so. And there is no other God but one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When Jesus Christ was asked what was the greatest commandment, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we know that there's only one true and living God. First Timothy chapter 2 reiterates that. But the Mormon God continues to evolve. And in Mormonism, the romance of the gods goes on. They move on and on. Because you see, Jesus Christ is a God. Just like you can become a God. I could become a God through the Mormon priesthood. And the Mormon God develops and moves onward. Adam, said Brigham Young, and I quote him, is our father and our God, and the only God with whom we have to do. Brigham said that in 18... 52. And then Brigham went on to point out in 1873, quote, how much unbelief exists in the minds of the Latter-day Saints about one doctrine which I revealed to them and which God revealed to me, namely that Adam is our father and our God. So the Mormon doctrine of Adam God was taught by Brigham Young by divine revelation. Just two years ago, the Mormon church decided that the church had never taught that and they completely ignored everything that Brigham Young had said in the Revelation. But you cannot change history. Now, if you go on from the Mormon doctrine of God, there are many passages which can be cited. Isaiah chapter 44, 6, where God specifically tells us that we have a divine revelation relative to God's nature. And we are told that the Lord is one God. We're told repeatedly in Isaiah 45, 22, Again, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I am God. There is no one else. So as we look at Mormon theology, the Mormon doctrine of God contradicts the Christian doctrine of God. All you have to do is look at Psalm 90, and you will find God saying, from everlasting to everlasting, 
He is God. But in Mormonism, gods evolve, and you evolve to become a god. Of course, up until a couple of years ago, Negroes were not permitted to evolve to become gods. They could only enter the third heaven, but as servants. Now, the reason for that is that there was a great war in heaven between God and the devil. And the spirits that entered the world as Negroes did not, did not fight with valor against the devil. They sort of sat back and wanted to find out who was going to win the war. So, says the Mormon church, what happens is that Negroes enter the world with a black skin and a flat nose, and they are under the curse of Cain. And their black skin indicates that. Well, you know, the pressure got pretty heavy on them from CORE and NAACP and the Christian church and their multiracial societies. So all of a sudden, they had a revelation. The revelation says, Negroes can now become gods. <laughs> but what they don't tell you is that they can't get to the third heaven as blacks. They have to end up there delightfully white. Of course, I'm sure that fills our Negro brothers and sisters with great joy that they will <laughs> finally, finally become delightfully or delightsomely white. The Mormon God changes. The Mormons practiced polygamy, you know, for years. It was a secret doctrine, then it got out in the open. And, of course, they kept right on doing it, despite the government telling them not to. Finally, the government of the United States said, we're going to confiscate all your holdings in the territory of Utah, the state of Utah, and exile you to Mexico. Immediately, the Mormon God had a revelation. <laughs> Changed his mind. Give up polygamy, which they did. You see, he had already told them in Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, that he'd given them a new and everlasting covenant and they'd be damned if they didn't follow it. That was polygamy. Then he reversed himself. So in Mormonism, you change your mind if you're the Mormon God, and there are just many gods all over the place. Now, who is Jesus Christ in Mormon theology? Well, according to Mormon theology, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But what does Mormonism really teach about the Lord Jesus? Well, you can look on the screen and see for yourself. It teaches that Jesus Christ was actually the spirit brother of Lucifer who became the devil and that Christ became the savior only because Lucifer's candidacy was turned down and Lucifer wanted to be the savior. You'll find all of this in the book Pearl of Great Price. But the fact remains that the Lord Jesus is denigrated and demoted in Mormon theology as he is in the theology of the watchtower. Jesus is a created God. He was created by his father, and his father was created by his father, and his father by his father, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. So that as you keep going back, all you have is an endless chain of gods. This is not Christian theology. Jesus Christ, John 1, 1, is the word of God made flesh. Jesus Christ is incarnate deity. The scripture repeatedly tells us that he accepted worship, and he is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He who could say before Abraham was, I am, is not the spirit brother of Lucifer. He is the creator of all things, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. All things are created by Christ, and for Christ he exists before all things. Not so in Mormonism. So you have another Jesus, you have another spirit, and you have an alien gospel, a racist gospel, because the scripture says, that in Jesus Christ there is neither barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. All are one body in Christ. But Mormonism discriminated against the Negro up until two short years ago by putting them under a divine curse in the name of God. Now, when we get to such subjects as the virgin birth of Christ, 
Mormonism has classically denied the virgin birth of Christ. In fact, Brigham Young taught that Jesus Christ was conceived by sexual relations between a resurrected God named Adam and the Virgin Mary. I quote Brigham Young. He was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. Not begotten by the Holy Ghost? What then did Matthew mean in Matthew chapter 1 when he said the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way? His mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they had sexual relations. She was found pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Clear as crystal. You've got to choose between Brigham Young and you've got to choose between him and Holy Scripture, the Word of God. There's no choice. Brigham was a false prophet. Mormons deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Mormons deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Mormonism denies the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and teaches that man may become a god. Mormonism substitutes its priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron and Melchizedek, for the priesthood of all believers. The scripture tells you in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 12 and 24, that the priesthood of Aaron disappeared at the cross, it was changed, and that the priesthood of Melchizedek belongs only to Jesus Christ. He holds that priesthood and passes it to nobody else because he lives after the authority of imperishable life. They have no savior from the biblical context. They have no authority from scripture. They have no real Jesus Christ, virgin birth, deity, or in the true biblical sense, Savior who delivers us from sin. As we look at Mormonism and look at all of these things, remember that the Mormon God has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's. That's Mormon theology. I always like to point out to Mormon missionaries, look at Psalm 91, verse 4. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. What does that mean? It means that God's a chicken. It also says, Jesus Christ said, I am the true vine, now he's a vegetable. I am the way, now he's the road. All of these are expressions to describe Christ and our relationship to him. But Mormonism, by taking these things literally, has turned God into a big man. You can just as easily transform him into a chicken, a blast furnace, or a vine, just by being literal. The scripture tells us that the God of the Bible is spirit. John 4, 24. God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when we reach out to Mormons, let's remember they have another Jesus. Let's remember they do not have the God of the Bible. Let's remember if you're going to deal with Mormon missionaries, deal with them on the basis of what the word of God has to say. Test their revelation as Brigham Young said and as Orson Pratt said. And when you do, you will find that it is wanting in the balance of Holy Scripture. Let us reach out to Mormons. Let us be concerned about them. But let us stand against the perversions of Mormon theology, strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power. Thank you. We come now to our questions from the audience in this seminar. And if you have a question, uh, please step to the microphone. Yes. Okay, we have our first question. Your name is? Cheryl McLaughlin. And your question. Is it true that the Mormons are infiltrating the businesses? Oh, well, the holdings of the Mormon church are positively enormous. Uh, they control large blocks of stock uh, all over the United States. Uh, they at one time controlled the uh, Safeway stores. Uh, they have investments in the Central Pacific Railroad. Uh, they own conglomerates. 
Uh, in fact, the Jack LaLanne uh, health spas are owned by the Mormon Church and quite a number of other things. Their uh, income yearly is three and three quarter million dollars a day and their holdings are in the billions of dollars. So you're dealing with a very large, well-organized business organization all over the country. We have our next question. Your name is? Jim Heron. And your question? Uh, yeah. How do you account for the growth of the Mormon Church with all their lives and their changes in the doctrine? I think that you can account for the growth and development of Mormonism by virtue of the fact that they imitate Christianity. You've got to recognize the fact that the good that's in Mormonism came from the Bible. People respond to that. Then they add all of the rest of the things after the person has responded to the gospel. Particularly, we have to face the fact that we're in an age of darkness in which people are moving away from the historic gospel and are concentrating instead. Uh, upon uh, various cultic and occultic groups to meet their spiritual need. My name is Gloria Martin. Um, Dr. Martin, I would like to know, uh, is it true that the Mormons believe that there are certain sins that cannot be washed away by the blood of Christ? Oh yes, Brigham Young specifically stated that the blood of Christ will not wipe out this particular sin, and he, he mentioned uh, a man dying on the scaffold, and uh, that this person would never see eternal life. And of course, the scripture is very clear on this subject. You have to remember that the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7 and 9. And so Christ's blood forgives all our sins. But Brigham Young said that there were some sins Christ's blood could not atone for. And of course, he was not telling the truth in terms of New Testament theology. Hi, your name is? Terry Spivey. And your question? Dr. Martin, could you address yourself to Joseph Smith's relationship to the occult? Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, he had these glasses that he wore when he was translating the Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. That sounds somewhat occultic. Could you? Well, he was into fortune-telling. He used a stone that he put in his hat. He was convicted uh, as a peak stone gazer in 1826, and we have the court record for that. The Mormon Church denied that for years, but we have it, and you can see it on the screen there if, if the uh, lines come through clearly enough. But he was convicted, and he was called Joseph Smith, glass looker, which meant that he was telling fortunes by looking into this. And uh, of course, occultism played a heavy part in Mormonism historically. In fact, uh, there's a clear-cut statement uh, of uh, a noted Mormon writer, Charles Penrose, that if you want to make communication with your departed relatives or friends, you shouldn't go to spiritists, you should go into the temple and the priesthood on this side of the veil, when it was necessary, would make contact with the priesthood on the other side of the veil. Well, that's nothing but pure old spiritism, and it was being practiced. Also, Joseph Smith allegedly appeared to Brigham Young and to other members of the church after his death and gave them information. You're right into the heart of the occult. I have a chapter on this in my book, uh, The Maze of Mormonism, on the occultic side of Mormonism. Hi, and your name is? Virginia Lyles. And your question. Uh, why do the Mormons baptize for the dead? Well, the Mormons baptized for the dead because in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, what about those who are baptized for the dead? And uh, they take it out of context. It's in a context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that Paul says Christ rose from the dead. The prophets said so. There is a resurrection of the dead. And then there are a group of people that obviously baptized the living for the dead. Paul doesn't get into an argument with them. He simply says, hey, you who are baptizing the living for the dead, um, why are you bothering to do it if the dead don't rise? End of argument. That's, that's what he wanted to say, and he said it. The early church did not, I repeat, did not baptize the living for the dead. That was not apostolic doctrine. The fact that Paul mentions it doesn't may mean it's apostolic doctrine. My name is Kevin White. And your question? I'd like to know, is there any archaeological evidence to the Book of Mormon? 
There is no archaeological evidence that supports the testimony of the Book of Mormon. We know this from the National Geographic magazine. We know it also from the Smithsonian Institution. I've reproduced this in my book, The Maze of Mormonism. And even some Mormon archaeologists have rebuked the Mormon missionaries and, and Mormons in general for trying to say that archaeology supports the Book of Mormon. There is no evidence that it supports the Book of Mormon or that what happened as recorded in the Book of Mormon ever was a fact of history on the American continent. Hi, your name? I am Welton White. And your question? Uh, Dr. Martin, I would like to know if the uh, Mormon doctrine is contained in the Book of Mormon. Well, a large percentage of Mormon doctrine, if you look at the screen, doesn't even appear in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is supposed to be the revelation, but uh, the church organization doesn't appear there, the Melchizedek priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood don't appear there, the plurality of gods, God is an exalted man, man may become a god, three degrees of glory, plurality of wives, celestial marriage, temple vows, baptism for the dead, genealogical records, pre-existence, eternal progression, the fact that we're supposed to have a heavenly mother. Uh, and the word of wisdom which tells you not to drink coffee and hot drinks. All of this, you see, had nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. This was added by Joseph Smith later on. And so I often say Mormonism isn't in the Book of Mormon. I think you can prove that. Hi, your name? Kenneth Parker. Yes. Question. Uh, Dr. Martin, my question is how do we effectively uh, uh, answer the uh, Mormon missionaries when the Christian church is apostasy? Well, the Mormons claim the Christian church is in apostasy. And this, of course, is refuted by Matthew 16, which I quoted before. If we were in apostasy, the gates of hell would prevail against the church. And their record of the scripture is that the church of Jesus Christ will be here until he comes back again. That's repeatedly affirmed in scripture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, an excellent illustration, we who are alive and remain will be caught up with the Lord. All of this is emphatic that the church is not in apostasy because if she were in apostasy in terms of doctrine, then nobody would know the true gospel. And since the church is preaching the true gospel and we can find it in the scriptures, we know there's no apostasy. Okay, our final question of the day. Your name is? Ed Susan. And your question? Uh, the Mormon church says it has a need for a prophet. Is this true? And if not, how do we answer it? Well, they claim that there must be a living prophet today. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, it says, God, who at different times and different ways spoke to our fathers in the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. And Jude verse 3 says, the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. I think that's very clear. And when you're dealing with Mormonism and with Joseph Smith, you want to remember what Joseph Smith said about himself and point this out to the Mormons because they're quite shocked. This comes from the history of the church. Let me read it to you. Joseph said, I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. <laughs> Very interesting. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. That's perfect humility in how I obtained it. <laughs> he also told the Mormon people this. God made Aaron to be the mouthpiece for the children of Israel. He will make me be God to you in his stead and the elders to be a mouth for me and if you don't like it you must lump it that's a direct quote to the mormon people from joseph smith and it appears that they have lumped it for a long time <laughs>